Hello and welcome to Setting the Skein. I'm Doug. I'm Tristan. I'm Elijah. And Benjamin J. Tankersley. Where the heck are you? He's not here. You, you silly boy. I feel like every time someone's not a guest, well, either you or Ben say, where the heck is blank? And then I say, they're not here. Yeah. I like, well, I like our little pattern. Unless you're the one missing Tristan and then and then it's where the heck is Tristan and the rest of us are like, let's just vote him off the island because oh. we're tired of him. Yeah. Oh, oh, OK. I didn't know. See, I don't listen to the episodes that I'm I'm not in. So we know that's why we badmouth you on all of them. Okay, well, that's fair. Well, guys, you know, I think it's I think it's really funny that we're all here today. Um, and granted, you know, listeners. You, you've been paying attention hopefully at least a little bit so like you know we record everything a couple <laughs> weeks in advance uh so i don't know necessarily if there will be a week in between uh releases but the last movie y'all talked about was so bad that we actually had to take a week off just to just for y'all to recover i wasn't even on it but y'all just had to recover from it valerian valerian okay it wasn't that bad um that is not what anyone has told me Kristen I mean, liked it better than the rest of us we have seen worst films by far that's that's true we've seen worse that is also a very like low bar <laughs> yeah. that is a very low bar to say i mean anything looks good films. compared to troll 2 okay well now let's let's not get crazy um <laughs> anything looks good compared to yeah. aragon mm. um but I think, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, even though I chose not to see Valerian um, with you guys, uh, I think that this movie we watched this week is better than better than Valerian. Would would y'all agree? Oh, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I would agree. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, folks, I will not keep you in the dark any longer um, because this week we chose to watch the 2012 not hit. Uh, Ruby Sparks, starring Zoe Kazan, Paul Dano, uh, Paul Dano, what a guy, uh, Annette Benning, Antonia Banderas, uh, Elliot Gould, Steve Guggen, uh, Chris Messina. Uh, yeah, this movie, again, came out in 2012, written by Zoe Kazan and directed by Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton. Uh, budget-wise, this movie was made for $8 million, and its, gr- and its box office was nine million dollars so it just squeaked in right right under the radar mm. uh ratings wise this is a pretty pretty solid movie 7.2 out of 10 on mdba uh 79 on the rottenest of tomatoes 4.3 out of 5 on goodreads and an 87 percent on the google uh so so yeah this movie i think i think art house like feels like a like a good way to describe this movie even though like yeah. it it's not like like an a24 kind of movie uh like this is not like a swiss army de- a swiss army man deal again you know we love our paul dano but um but still i think this sort of fits into the the art house film category and uh it- yeah, go ahead I, I think I agree, but also it um, a lot of people are put off by that term art house film because they think it's just going to be weird and pretentious. Yeah, I don't think this true. movie was like that either. It was yeah. in some ways 
at at times just felt like a normal rom-com that you might catch on tv and then if you pay closer attention you realize it's a little bit more than that yeah i think i think i'll i'll retract my statement because for the first maybe hour of this movie first half or first uh third roughly uh you think that you're getting like just the classic rom-com like think i really i really hate using this example because there are so many better rom-coms we could use but think wedding planner like like really kind of uh gimmicky-esque movie and then there's a hard turn into this art house ethereal kind of just like kind of just like hmm. huh that made me think maybe even gave me an existential crisis in the yeah in the <laughs> yeah in the process yeah. um but uh but yeah so, something kind of made me think about a lot of recent movies that i've seen and you know i guess maybe all of us have seen and stuff we've done on the podcast um typically we we say a movie has good writing just i'm just talking about what we've said in the past typically we say it if it's a newer film yeah and something i've noticed is that really it wasn't until the 80s that movies started to like you know writers really had were making like realistic people i guess like like realistic dialogue um you know maybe a little maybe there were a few before then but you know you had this these like this melodramatic sort of golden age actors before then um and then you got you know eventually you got around to this writing and i think this is this is a movie that is a good example of something right in the middle of you know um this is a good piece of writing and this sort of fantastical idea. I don't know. It just made me think of that. If that makes any sense at all. I think that probably has more to do with the acting than the writing. Cause I think these days when people write a script, they're more apt to encourage their actors to talk the way people talk in actual conversation, you know, mumble, interrupt each other, things like that. And I didn't used to do that on screen. I think that's more to do with the way actors are directed than the way the script is written. Don't you? Yeah, that's true. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think honestly, it's kind of like a mix mash of, of both of y'all's uh, points. Because I mean, in the sort of like modernism, postmodernism uh, landscape of writing, where you know we're not so much focused on the spectacle of things as we are on the internal uh, individual. Uh, yeah, desires. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think I- that's, I think that's why you see such a drastic shift in uh screenwriting from something like uh i'm just going off the last movie i saw uh something like the music man from 1962 to something like this in 2012 uh where you know music man you know it's very flashy there's there's a lot of flash but not a lot of substance um and here not so much flash and I've never used this word before. Oodles, oodles and <laughs> oodles of set of substance. Yeah. I mean, we have, we can look at, I don't want to say this movie was a blockbuster. It, it clearly wasn't, but um, you know, you can look at popular movies or blockbusters that are from the sixties and then look at them from the nineties and then look at ones today and compare them. And they're all very different types of films that are were very popular, you know, definitely like more like action type movies in the nineties Whereas today you've got more of like, you know, uh, people studies or, 
just um, art house, if you will. A24 is very popular with a lot of their movies. They're, they're going strong. So, I mean, yeah. the, like, you know, five or six years ago, A24 films were not as popular as they are now. And yeah. that's just recently. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you know, we've, we've kind of talked around this movie a little bit. Uh, and I know that I've seen this movie before. Uh, I saw it this past year. Uh, I don't think either of y'all have seen it before. No, never seen it. No, this was my first time. This is one of those movies, though, because uh, in my quest to watch 200 movies this past year, um, slight humble brag right there. Uh, this is one of the movies that as soon as I watched it, I texted y'all and just straight up said, you have to watch this because I needed to get y'all's reaction to it. Um but uh but yeah uh i saw it for the first time this year and i enjoyed it as well uh would either of you care to try a break down the story for our listeners for for those uh who have not seen this movie so ruby sparks is mostly centered on a writer named calvin played by paul dano and he is very lonely (laughs) Um, and wants to find love and also misses the days when he used to be a more successful writer. He's had writer's block for a long time, but he finally, at the urging of his therapist, starts to write about his dream girl, and then she comes to life. He wakes up one day to find that she is in his house making breakfast, as if they have been living together and dating for a while. Um, And so he freaks out. Um, and then has to try to figure out what he's going to do now that he has written his dream girl into existence. Should we say more than that now or save it for our actual discussion? I mean, I think we can kind of use it as a springboard opportunity because, you know, I think, I think if, if I were just told that side of the story, if I were just told this is a movie about, about a writer who, writes about his dream girl and all of a sudden she comes to life you know i would think of this as some sort of like uh i mean there's there's no better way to say this uh like misogynistic fever dream uh and and there and and the movie even points out the fact that this premise like if if handled incorrectly is something akin to uh what is what is that movie it's a mel gibson movie from the 90s so you know it's just not great um i think it's what Mm -hmm. women want i think that's what it is uh, okay i haven't seen that movie but i know what you're talking about yeah yeah it's like this movie where all of a sudden he can read like women's thoughts and you know it turns into this whole like watch this guy like learn exactly how to get the girl of his dreams and if you just heard that side of the premise of Ruby Sparks, I think it would be very easy to be turned off by this movie. Um, but I think Zoe Kazan, the the writer and, and co-lead of this movie, is really smart because I, I feel like she, she knows that that's going to be the initial reaction when you hear this premise um, because I think she's really able to turn it on its head. Um, uh yeah because you know spoiler alert for a movie that came out nine now ten years ago uh like calvin very quickly finds out that uh ruby is capable of becoming her own 
person her own entity apart from him and that's where the real meat of the story comes from is his struggle with uh with finding like a real relationship that he thinks is fulfilling and also maintaining this this control that he really wants in the relationship yeah when he first finds out he realizes what's happened the only person he tells is his brother who's much shallower than he is or at least that's the way it seems from their dialogue early on um and his brother is like oh well you could just keep writing and make her whatever you want you know and he talks kind of crudely about things that his brother could write to make his dream girl even better and at first calvin insists he will never write about her again because she's already perfect and his brother says well yeah you think that now but just wait a couple weeks or whatever and um his brother's actually right because uh calvin's obsessed with his image of this dream girl but she is her own person now that she really exists she's her own person (laughs) she changes her mind about things she evolves and grows she gets bored and lonely she has conflict with him uh all that stuff and he doesn't like that and uh, you know problems start having happening because he eventually decides he is going to keep writing and he writes stuff just to manipulate her just to change her even more to make her what he thinks is even more perfect Uh, but of course it just causes more problems yeah yeah doug you mentioned before we started recording um about the manic pixie dream girl trope yeah this how this kind of turns it on its head because it takes a potential manic pixie dream girl with this character. And then she actually is like moves beyond that, at least in his eyes, I guess, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Tell me what you think about that. Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, for, for those of you who don't know, um, or are unfamiliar with the term, uh, many manic pixie dream girl sort of refers to this trope that really, sort of hit its stride in the early 2000s and what it is is sort of an archetype and it's it's a very interesting case of an archetypal caricature of women in film uh and the the general sort of outline for them is that uh they are incredibly quirky and outgoing they have their own very specific very uh outlandish idiosyncrasies that uh that make them different from most other people um and one of the biggest things that sort of defines this manic pixie dream girl aesthetic is that they are only interested in the uh in the brooding loners in the the guys who aren't the outgoing businessmen or lawyers, but are the uh, more insightful uh, artists and writers. Um, and if you if you ever have a minute to uh, to like actually do some research on it, like anyone who has a critique of Mac Pixie Dream Girl basically just ties it all back to. Uh, I think the way that this started is that a bunch of lonely writers who had been dumped by their previous girlfriends got together and said what if we wrote our dream girl into a movie or into a book and they couldn't leave us Uh that's that's sort of the cataclyst uh that has been decided for this this manic pixie dream girl aesthetic 
I think the original was Kirsten Dunst's character from Elizabeth Town. That is, is that widely right? that is widely regarded as as if not the first, the epitome of this manic yeah. pixie dream girl. Yeah, because she comes the manic pixie dream girl comes along and then like begins to slowly solve all of the man's problems. And it ends up becoming all about him getting everything that he wants because of her. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh in in this sort of uh caricature, this this archetype of manic pixie dream girl, uh one of the biggest uh aspects of it that is not talked about a lot is the fact that the 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 woman or the or the character in question has little to no agency apart from the um apart from the uh the male lead and it's not like it's and it's not like she is in she is not allowed to to make any decisions for herself but the story is written in a way that she will never make a decision that detract that takes her away from uh the the man she is interested in or uh takes focus away from him and his ambitions yeah so yeah, it's a really misogynistic trope. Um, yeah, and that's and Zoe Kazan wrote this movie, right? Am I yeah. remembering that right? Yeah, Zoe yeah, Kazan so is she, the writer. Her her intention was to take that trope and be like, all right, let's deconstruct this and and make it realistic. Yeah, um, yeah, and she she said in an interview, and I'm trying to find the quote here. But she said something to the effect of like the reason that this trope doesn't work is because it takes all these very specific quirks and uh, aspects of a person of a person's uh, opinions, likes, dislikes and actions. And it misinterprets that as character. It tries to take uh, individual qualities and make them an entire person. And that's where this whole trope really falls on its head, uh, really falls flat, is the fact that, you know, a, an opinion, a person's opinion does not make that person a whole human being. Uh, a person's uh, weird mannerisms or, or, uh, or individual way of communicating doesn't make them their entire person. Uh, it's a aspect of it, but it's not their full character. And Zoe Kazam really focused on that, and she really tried to to sort of get that idea across when writing Ruby, um, because you know initially she does come out as this manic pixie dream girl, uh, completely, completely bent and created uh and molded to the will of calvin but as the movie progresses you know she she starts to like actually grow into an actual person um yeah i don't know i mean i i there are movies i I guess a, a good example is yes man where there's a character who is sad or depressed or something meets a woman who you know he sees as like this is it this is this is the one i've been looking for and it's someone that he can't really connect with like fully um and that happens in yes man 
Um, but here it's 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 different in that he can he can fully connect with her because he wrote her, but not not always, not like you know forever because she changes and very quickly becomes someone that you know he can't. So yeah, it does a good job with. It, it, it almost, you know, it almost doesn't really have this trope at all. It, it's just a person. He writes a girl, you know, a woman, and um, and she just becomes her own person. <laughs> right. It's just a human, you know, rather than just being a trope. She's just a person. Right. And the obvious lesson is, you know, he writes his dream girl and then finds out, oh, even she has flaws and, uh, you know, other aspects that are not necessarily flaws that just get on my nerves. Or, um, you know, she's not always there to serve my needs. Yeah, She's her own person with her own needs. And maybe I need to serve her too. You know, like he has to go from uh, this is my dream girl to, oh, this is a person. And, you know, in that respect, his story of bringing his dream girl to life from the page is not different from real stories that actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know. You know, I think it's also really interesting uh, because, you know, like Elijah was saying, his brother is the first person that he tells about uh, Ruby um, and his brother initially goes to that whole mentality of like, you can literally make her do whatever you want. Um, but if you'll remember earlier in the movie, before he ever writes anything about Ruby, his brother also brings up this interesting fact because he's talking about his wife, uh, his brother's wife so calvin's sister-in-law um he's talking about his wife and he makes like a little jab at her or like complains about one thing about her and calvin says calvin says if that bothers you then why are you still married to her and his brother is the is very quick to say well i still love her uh i love i love my wife uh the thing is, is that she's weird she's messy people are weird and messy um, and, you know, I think that's, I think that's kind of, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't really know what Zoe Kazan was trying to say when she wrote that, uh, that the, that the, uh, character who was very quick to, uh, to go with this sort of stereotypical, like, this is what you should do with this dream girl that you've written, uh, is also the one who kind of explains the moral of the movie. Right. I think, well, I don't know exactly what she was going for either, but I think irony is a good word for it because he, well, okay, here's one thing. He, you know, like you were saying, he's, he's kind of the jerk from the beginning, but then he's the one who kind of subtly, subtly slips in the actual moral message of the story. Um, also, I think his presence in here is kind of to start to show you that even, the, you know, at first we thought Calvin was the good guy. Um, you know, he's not like other guys. He's not that shallow or whatever. As the story progresses, you realize he actually is maybe in a different way um, because he doesn't want to write her into a, a kind of perfection like what his brother wanted. But Calvin does eventually succumb to that. Uh, really misogynistic desire to control her, to control um, Zoe Kazan's character, Ruby, <laughs> the title character. I forgot her name for a second. And so Calvin ends up becoming a bad guy. At first, we didn't think he would because he was different from his brother. Um, but we find out he's actually not so different in a way. He still wants to control this woman and just keep her 
his dream girl so that he can keep himself happy. And he's not really as concerned about her as he should be. Yeah. And, and that kind of gets, that kind of gets into a bigger point that I wanted to talk about with y'all, because I think a big, uh, I think a big sort of, uh, motif in this, in this movie is how much do our flaws like actually define us as people? Um, and, you know, I think, I think from very early on in this movie, we're sort of set up to expect that Calvin is going to be this character who kind of has a little bit of a superiority complex because, uh, you know, from the outset, we learn this is a, this is a man who from a very young age skyrocketed in fame uh wrote a wrote an incredible novel that is still being talked about 10 years later um wildly popular people love him people continuously say you know you're a genius you're a genius and granted he tries to sort of push those down but as the as the movie goes on that superiority complex turns into turns into like a god complex uh, because he is in control of Ruby and he abuses that towards the end. So I think my question for y'all is, is that do you think that Calvin's sort of uh, arc from superior, from suppressed superiority to unleash godlike uh, capabilities um, do you think that that makes him irredeemable? Because I'll be honest with you, the first time I watched this movie, I said, I I said to myself, you know, Calvin is an irredeemable villain in this movie. Um, like you said I, that when you finished it. Yeah, when I finished it, I said, I said, I understand how this movie is ending, like you know, implying that he grows, but. I don't feel like he can grow as a human being if he actually pursues a relationship with, uh, I, I mean, I'm just kind of saying that it's Ruby. Um, yeah. With, with this woman that he meets because. That's a good. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. That, that's a good question. It's something that I asked before we recorded. I mean, is it, I mean, you could, you could, you could talk about, does he deserve this to go back to, you know, after what he did? arguable you know but also should he go back to this person again who he already had a relationship with and it didn't work out you know um i mean you could argue about that too it didn't work out for very specific reasons and we know why it didn't work out but also this was someone who was changing you know before he even tried to do you know to write a different version of her um and she kept changing away from him so Maybe they weren't meant to be together. I mean, I don't know. The, the end of the movie suggests that it's possible that they are, which was interesting to me. Um, it kind of made me think of the end of 500 Days of Summer. Oh, yeah. Where, big where time. He, yeah, big time, where he finds another girl and he's like, like, okay. I I would just I would just like to point out, um, I was keeping a I was keeping a watch to see how long it took us to mention 500 Days of Summer. Because I knew um, it was going to come up in this movie. Yeah, I almost mentioned that, it about ten minutes ago. That that is that is all that I have to say about that. Um, I mean, yeah. it, it, 
it's a movie that like they're similar in a lot of ways um you know obviously five days of summer does not have a man writing a woman but but that is a movie about a girl who is you know moving away from from the guy in in a way that is like she's just different from him like you know mm-hmm. they maybe they were good for a little while but eventually they they grew apart you know i was gonna i, I almost mentioned this earlier because um zoe de chanel she was in yes man too right she was the girl yeah. in yes man Zoe Deschanel, I think, has been accused of playing the manic pixie dream girl more than yeah. once because she likes to play quirky characters. And then we end up with women whose quirks make them endearing. And then they um, they become like a savior to men. And it actually becomes about the men. Um, anyway, I was going to say I, 500 Days of Summer, I think, has some people criticize it for the manic pixie dream girl thing. But I think. Um, that might've actually been the point. I think maybe 500 days of summer. One of the points of that movie was very similar to one of the points of this movie Yeah, about thinking you found your dream girl and then realizing it's actually not, you know, it's not perfection. You're not going to find what you think of as perfection, like get over yourself. You know Um, I think that's kind of a big point of both movies. I mean, this in both movies, you know, I guess we could focus on Ruby Sparks. That's what we're talking about. But you could say that, you know, that women are just like men are, you know, everyone has their own thing going on. So these, these are stories that focus on a guy and, you know, both of these movies talk about someone who is generally depressed. I suppose you could say that, or they're, they're just unsatisfied with life. Um, and they find someone who brings them that happiness, but this is someone who is evolving and changing as well. And to them, it looks like the perfect person to the guy, you know? Um, but it, it almost like this trope itself of manic pixie dream girl almost blames these women for just being who they are. Um, and because they're still growing and they're still learning and feelings change and time goes on and, you know, at the end of 500 Days of Summer, they sit together on the park bench. Sorry, I'm talking about that movie, but that, I mean, that that's that's like, to me, that's that's almost the opposite of Ruby Sparks. In Ruby Sparks, these this couple, you know, they meet each other again, and literally, Ruby says, do you want to start over or something like that? Which, I mean, has several meanings in the moment. Um, actually, it means something, but the audience knows what it means. Um and then in 500 Days of Summer, you see both of these characters successful, but apart at the end, but still, you know, they still have a sort of connection there. And that, that's, that's, I don't know, it, 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 it's interesting that it, I feel like that's more realistic. The 500 Days of Summer route is more realistic. But of course, in Ruby Sparks, we have a fictional character that came to life. So, I mean, that's right. <laughs> it was, it was classified as a fantasy movie when I watched it. Yeah, it said fantasy on there. So, yeah, it's a little different, but I do think it's a similar point. Yeah. Back to Doug's question. Um, I would say the question of whether or not he deserves Ruby and the question of, the question of whether he's irredeemable. I think those are two different things. I would say, no, he does not deserve her. But I also would not say he's irredeemable. I think he does his part to, um, you know, he does his own work. He grows. He learns. And resolves to do better in the future. You know, I think that, you know, that's what you should expect from people. Um, and I think that 
in a sense, is his redemption. I don't think he's irredeemable. I think, I think very but, few people are. <laughs> but he he is a villain, though, Doug. I agree with you. Yeah, I think I think that's I think it's very fair that you know he can be eventually redeemed. I don't think we see him fully redeemed in this movie, but I don't think we're supposed to. Yeah. Um, because I do think that in the full course of this movie, you know, I think Zoe Kazan's point is to point out the fact that uh, if you try and fit a person into this box that you've created for them, ultimately you're just going to wind up uh, hurting each other in the end. Uh, you're going to hurt the person. Um, and, you know, it's just not healthy. And I think that in order for that message to be delivered, Paul Dano has to be the villain in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was done very effectively. The movie very is much so. The movie is um, really provocative. And I think the message is pretty clear. Um, I would definitely recommend this movie to somebody. I'm getting ahead of, uh, uh, of us because <laughs> I'm about to just give it a rating, but we're not there yet. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this was a very effective movie. I liked it. I mean, most movies that I can relate to, I, I you know, I'm probably going to give a pretty, pretty good rating. And this is this along with 500 Days of Summer are two movies that I feel like, like Doug's, Doug's smiling. Well, I, I think, <laughs> well, because here's the thing. So so in preparation for this for this discussion and I, I looked up a bunch of uh, video essays about um I looked up a bunch of video essays about Mad Pixie, Dream Girl, Ruby Sparks, and the like. Um, and every single one of them, it compared this movie to 500 Days of Summer, <laughs> yeah. which I find so fun. Because like when I first watched this, I made that comparison to myself. Um, I made that comparison to myself. Uh, it, listeners, if you've been listening uh, within this past year, you know that I have listened to one of Tristan's favorite. I've watched one of Tristan's favorite movies, 500 days of summer. And I could not stand it. I, I, I abhorred it. Um, I detested it, but this movie, I just ate it up. Um, and, and I, I don't, I, I honestly am trying to figure out why it is that I have such strong opinions uh both ways in this movie because okay hold on let me let me give you a point of let me give you like uh just just the the facts okay so i watched 200 movies in 2021 ruby sparks was my 22nd favorite movie and 500 days of summer was number 189 yeah and and I have been trying. So I think honestly, I think I need to sit down and watch them both back to back again, uh, and just make a better assessment. Because the problem, the biggest problem that I had with Five Hundred Days of Summer is that they both are incredibly unlikable. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character and Zoe Deschanel's character are incredibly unlikable people. And I think I think part of the reason that I like Ruby Sparks is that only one of the people is very unlikable. <laughs> and that person is one of your favorite actors. Uh, yeah, that's that's also true. I am also a sucker for Paul Dano. 
And I've yeah. discovered this year that I'm a sucker for Zoe Kazam because she was in my fourth favorite movie of the year, Big Sick. Uh, not fourth. Yeah, fourth. I think fourth. <laughs> yeah, fourth. Fourth. Cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I really... I really do want to rewatch both of them again, make a better judgment because I don't think it's fair for me to say that I detest 500 days of summer so much, but I love this movie so much when they are constantly compared as like the two most similar uh, in terms of like their goals as movies. By the way, listeners, welcome to our podcast, Three Inept White Boys Discuss and Deconstruct the Manic Pixie Dream Girl Misogynistic Trope. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's it, anyway, it, it's just like this movie really takes the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope and just and just, you know, put, puts it on a spear. And just kind of that's it. <laughs> well, I yeah. think, okay, okay, because I because I was thinking about this too. Right. Uh, I was thinking about this too when y'all were talking when y'all were talking earlier. Um, let's be real, okay? Have you ever at one point in your life watched a movie and a manic pixie dream girl type character came on screen and you found yourself even slightly attracted to her? Of course. What What do you mean? Like what What's <laughs> What's your point? My point is, is that though we are very much so incapable of discussing white, I don't think that we're, we obviously are not like the best voices to discuss like how, uh, how this like trope like uh, impacts women. Um, we, we are not capable of doing that, but I think we are capable of just saying like, you know, like we understand that this is a trope and it's an effective trope for several audience members. But I think it's also important to acknowledge the fact that it's also problematic. And even though we can't get into, we can't possibly understand the intricacies of why it's problematic, we understand that it is problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I understand the guy's part. I, I've been in relationships in the past. Well, there's one particular I can think of. I mean, it was just where I, I took it in that way, you know, like the, it was it was that way for me and it ended and you know, I see movies like 500 days of summer or Ruby sparks. And it makes me think of that time, you know, and how, how I was during that. So yeah, I, I relate to it. I feel like I experienced some of these feelings and thoughts about it firsthand. And I don't know. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm just saying like, I feel at least somewhat qualified. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're probably all kind of like Calvin from the movie that we like to think we're better than to do, you know, to, to adjust a woman the way that he did. But in his situation, maybe we'd be as weak as he was, you know, um, it's uh, and I was going to point out even before the terms manic or pixie were assigned to this phrase to make it a little more fun. <laughs> um the phrase dream girl has been around for, you know, oh, of a long, long time. Of course. And this, you know, even if this had never been labeled as a trope and given a name with a lot of pizzazz, um, this movie, Ruby Sparks, still sat- satirizes um, the, the whole idea of, you know, she's my dream girl. Because uh, that whole idea is just, a it's fallacy. kind of a, it's, a it's removing her personhood, 
you know? Yeah. So I think that was the point of this movie. And it was really provocative, really well done. I dug it. I would definitely recommend this movie. Doug's pointing at me because I said Doug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I feel like, do, do y'all have anything else to say? Because I feel like that's a really good note to kind of wrap up on. Well, this has become manic pixie dream girl conversation more than anything. I mean, who didn't think that was where this whole conversation was going to go? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an important part. I mean, we I also let, I had a note in here about um, the idea of leaving something to truly love it. Yeah, that's kind of what it talks about at the end. I mean, you guys maybe have heard of the. I don't, even, I don't have any idea where the quote's from, but it's something like, if, if, you, if love you love something, something let it go. Free. If yeah. you love something, set it free. But if it comes that, back, you can keep it, something like that. That idea has showed up in a lot of songs. I know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, the, the, <laughs> it's the thing that my first girlfriend said to me when we broke up. So that was and fun. I, I, think, I think also, you know, in the, in the whole span of this movie, I think the audience is put in a position to when when ruby gives the invitation to calvin can we start over again i truly feel like the entire audience is led to believe or is led to kind of cry out and say no don't start over again yes just just cut this off it's over just leave her alone yeah it's over it's yeah you created a person out of thin air don't try this again it will not end well for either of you yeah Yeah, and and he does he clearly grew from that experience but i still did watch this and think okay like he's he's found his redemption and he's grown as a person but that doesn't mean that he deserves to have her back and i kind of expected the ending to go elsewhere and was maybe a little disappointed when it it didn't end quite as bitterly as I thought it would. They tried to give us a happy ending, very similar to the one from 500 days of summer. If you want to call that happy, which most people wouldn't. <laughs> um, and, what and that I, surprised me a little. What I would give for an extra three minutes of this movie, just at the end, just to see what he says. I just want to hear what he says. Yeah. I, I just want to hear what he says. If he says, if he says, yes, we can start over or he says, no, nah, go die in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, what we can do is we can shoot that for you and you can be the main character and we'll record it. Oh, my gosh. Make, gonna... make your dreams come true. OK, can we do one take where each of the guys are Ruby? So, you know, <laughs> we'll do we'll do one take with Elijah as Ruby, one take with Tristan as Ruby, one take with Ben, one take with Mike and so on and so forth. <laughs> and all um, our guests. <laughs> yeah, 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 all of our guests. Every guest we've ever had on the podcast. The setting, the skein, Samak universe purely, (laughs) purely consists of, um, of the last three minutes of Ruby Sparks re-edited. Every person we've mentioned, all the Dutch. All the Dutch. We get the entire country, the entire country of the Netherlands is Ruby Sparks. (laughs) Um, And I think that's a quote we can, we can wrap up things with. So, fellas, let's score this sucker. Let's. All right. So, who wants to start us off first? 
That was a really long way to say that sentence. I'm going to give this movie a 91 and I would recommend it to anybody um, except maybe um, my parents, because they might be offended by some of the content. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love that. I love that. I said, I said the word everybody out loud. And then I thought everybody (laughs) that sums up my take on so many movies it would be great don't think my parents should watch it but it's great yeah uh, um yeah i can go next all right i'll give it an 85 um i would have given it higher but i think the ending was unrealistic and it didn't um i mean he honestly i, I think he you know should have should have moved on or moved moved you know Maybe if we could have seen him just, you know, say something bittersweet, like, you know, you know, it's it's nice to meet you again or something like that. Or, I don't know, like something to that, that says that they're not going to get into a relationship again. Yeah. Yeah. I will say nice. I kind of agree with Tristan on that. Um, I would have given it higher than what I gave it if maybe the ending had been a little more sobering and a little less, all right, here's your fairy tale ending. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you, right. I'm, I'm telling you last three minutes of the movie, Zoe Kazan, please show us what the last three minutes of Ruby Sparks actually is. Yeah, we need it. I mean, it, but it's just, I don't know. I've, I've seen this before and it, this isn't the way it goes. So <laughs> <laughs> I've been a part of it. Good to know. Uh, all right. I'm going to give this movie an 83. Uh, again, I really do like this movie. I think it's a really, really solid movie. I think it really is excellent writing, excellent acting. Um, also, we didn't even touch on this, but Zoe Kazan and Paul Dano are like an actual couple in real life. So that just adds another layer to it. Um, or at least it does for me. I don't know if it does for other people, but that. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think it's I think it's always interesting when uh, when couples in real life carry that relationship to the screen, um, because, you know, you get to there's so much chemistry there that you just can't create otherwise. Um, So I think that's always interesting. Uh, But no, I think I think this is a really great movie. I think people should definitely, definitely give it a watch. Um, and after plugging that into our patented scoreometer, that brings our score, our average score, to 86. So, yeah, like Elijah said, everybody should watch this movie. Maybe not his parents, but everybody <laughs> else should watch this movie. You know yeah. what? I'm, I'm going to be dead serious with you. Uh, I've started a secondary list elijah and if she's listening to this uh i will gladly share it with her um i've started a secondary list of movies that i would just love to watch with abby walls and this is one of them (laughs) to get her take on yeah i just i i really (laughs) i really you know we've done a lot of episodes with abby and i've grown to really appreciate her her like opinions on films and this is one that i would love to hear her take on yeah um me too but yeah also you know i would love to hear what she thinks about uh 
taking an exercise your therapist gave you and publishing a book about it. <laughs> um, you know, interesting stuff. Uh, well, fellas, what what are we watching next week? Because I hear there's a lot of buzz around it. Shut um, up. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, well, uh, Doug, we're watching a B-movie called B-movie. Okay, the B-movie is not a B-movie. That is an A-plus level movie. The B-movie. The B-movie. Y'all, I'm so excited. We get to talk the about... movie <laughs> We get to talk about Jerry Seinfeld's magnum opus, The B-movie. <laughs> uh, ooh, that was a statement. I don't love Seinfeld. Uh, That's the first five seasons of Seinfeld. This is magnum opus. I... Six don't love Seinfeld like at all uh so to me the B movie is his magnum opus and uh, I think Seinfeld's the funniest show out there so and you just finished watching it so I just finished it yep so good deal we're sure to talk about the Seinfeld uh season series finale just as much as we talked about 500 days of summer this week when we talk yep. about B movie next week maybe um uh, yeah, uh, be sure to keep up with all the things we have going on here at Viter Media. Uh, new episodes of Saying the Skein every Wednesday. And I took a little break from tea. I'll hopefully be getting it back up. But, you know, uh, just be flexible with it. Um, uh, nothing's wrong. I just took a break and haven't decided when I want to start back again. Um, He's resting. I'm Let resting. the man rest, everyone. I'm resting. I reckon. I recognize the fact that I took six months off, but you know, hey, I, give me, give me, give me a little bit more time. Um, but yeah, uh, and you can follow us uh, on all social media platforms at Viter Media. Uh, get us where all wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to tune in next week for the B movie. Uh, with that being said, I don't think there's anything else. So for all of us here at Saying the Skein, I'm Doug. I'm Tristan. I'm Elijah. And this has been Saying the Skein. Y'all have a great week. Mm-hmm.